Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sederdicato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine, while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what we can do to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I'm talking about moral injury and how we can benefit from honest conversations about moral injury and how the feminine can help. Before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. While I am a therapist, I am not your therapist. And now without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. So today's episode is going to detour a little bit from the food and body stuff that I've been talking about a lot lately. And we're going to come back to that. Uh, But that's the thing about the feminine, the repressed feminine in our in our society is that she manifests in all sorts of ways. And food and body is just one corner of that conversation. The way that we treat each other, the way we prioritize our values, the way we treat ourselves in the face of challenges around those values. It's creating, I think, a fundamental ache in us collectively. You know, baby boomers often ask me why millennials are so depressed. And my answer is that it's not just millennials who are depressed. And we can have frank conversations about the economy, student debt, you know, the student debt that perpetually leaves us working in overdrive to get nowhere except for out of the quicksand of the past, Uh, the environment, which is reaching a dead end, it feels like, the state of violence and hatred that we find ourselves in. There's a lot that we can list and we can talk about for hours that can make somebody feel a little hopeless and helpless in a, if you view things from, from a a wide perspective. Um, But at the root of all of that is the repressed feminine. And that's really my answer to that question is when, when we look at a culture who is aching, you know, who's suffering from the degree of addiction that we are and violence toward each other and disconnection. When we look at us at a cultural level, it's the repressed feminine that is creating that for us. It's the prioritizing of money and status and acquisition rather than connection, nurturance and spiritual growth. Um, And again, as I always say, this is not about the feminine dominating. It's just about there being balance because right now and for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the masculine has dominated in Western cultures, in American culture in particular. And when the masculine dominates, the feminine is is quieted. It's told to shut up. It's told that it's weak and that it's ridiculous and that it's useless. And the truth is, is that it's it's a fundamental source of nourishment for us as a people. And so we're suffering because we are not being fed in that way. And one of the ways that this manifests is in something called moral injury. And moral injury in and of itself is not an issue of feminine versus masculine, but it holds the conflict within it, especially in how the systems that often trigger moral injury are also the worst to respond to it. So moral injury is a soul wound. It's damage to a person's moral foundation. And it's the pain that ensues from engaging in behaviors that violate what they believe to be right. 
So this can include the behavior itself. It can include witnessing something against your values. It can include failing to prevent acts that go against your values for whatever reason. And it is rising up, thankfully, uh, although it's a slow build, in conversations around returning veterans and the burdens that they're carrying from war. And so the idea is that when we're facing some degree of, of survivalism, but we don't have the resources that we need or we don't have the ability to make a choice that aligns with our moral foundation, that we are, our, our soul is harmed in that process. Our psyche is harmed in that process. When all of the options that we have, none of them are good options and we just sort of have to pick the least terrible option, uh, especially if that's happening consistently or if it's happening in extreme circumstances, it is creating harm within us. To varying degrees, um, veterans and service members are not the only folks in our society who carry the burden of moral injury. Uh, there's a video by Dr. Z. Uh, in fact, a video that a veteran showed me because in this video, Dr. Z applies moral injury to those of us who work in the healthcare profession, doctors, nurses, any sort of practitioner in the medical field and also in mental health. And how perverted those systems have become and how those that join the healthcare profession in order to do good, in order to contribute and help out, are consistently having to violate their moral code in order to survive the job and the pressures that come with it. Moral injury gets called a lot of things. It's called burnout. It's called guilt. It's called shame. It's called trauma. And... That allows for different ways to address the moral injury, but without actually addressing the moral injury itself. So they become distractions. For example, when you call moral injury trauma, say in the case of a combat veteran who had to take actions that challenged their belief system, you you make it supposedly treatable now because it's trauma. You can prescribe some medication to it, even if the medication doesn't actually help the issue. You can pathologize it. You can make it an illness rather than call it what it actually is, which is a very natural, reasonable, and appropriate response to somebody violating their own moral philosophy. And when that, when our value systems and our moral philosophy stops mattering as a race, I think we're, we're screwed because it's, it's our, and always let your conscience be your guide. The thing that makes us human is that we have empathy, is that we have a conscience. It's that we care about other people. It's that we, just like every other species of, of creature on earth, at the end of the day, prioritize surviving, prioritize not going extinct. And the thing that humans are armed with in order to keep us from killing each other is empathy. <laughs> it's our conscience. It's the thing that says, wait a minute, are you sure that you want to do that? Because that's going to cause a lot of harm. And that's not who you are. Sometimes we don't have any choice but to do that thing. And again, if it's happening chronically or if it's happening to an extreme degree, that's going to leave a mark on us. And when we call it trauma, we're pathologizing it. Now, trauma and moral injury may overlap, but they are not the same thing. And they should be both represented in the conversation. When you call moral injury guilt or shame... You are recognizing how it does manifest in us, yes. And that opens up possibilities for therapy to address and repair the guilt and shame. But it still misses the root cause of the guilt and shame, which is sometimes external. It's not coming from within. 
And moral injury can absolutely perpetuate shame and even addictive behaviors that we engage in in order to survive the shame or avoid the shame. And then shame can lead us into behaviors that create moral injury and perpetuate. Right now we're doing things to avoid shame and we're not proud of the things that we're doing. And so now the cycle is, is sort of getting perpetuated. But moral injury can unequivocally start from outside of us. And when you call moral injury burnout, now you're victim blaming, you're gaslighting in a sense. You're saying that the reason that somebody is feeling defeated or anxious or unable to function or cynical and hopeless is because they're not participating in some new wave of capitalism that says, if you don't get enough massages or meditate with some essential oils, you're not taking care of yourself and you are not arming yourself, strengthening yourself to be able to do your, your task. It's an oppressive systemic voice that says, don't challenge your environment. Don't ask questions about the way the system under which you work functions. Don't ask questions about how the system itself is harming you. Just do whatever it takes to remain productive in it, despite its abusive hold over you. So this is where we want to become a little bit more careful about introducing moral injury into the conversation. It's because we have to stop being gaslighted as a people who are being told that we're burned out. And in some cases, that may just be what it is. It may be burnout. It may be that the system that you work in, if you're in a healthcare profession or mental health, or if you're a veteran, or if you're a first responder, that the conditions that you work in are actually doing their best, but you're exhausted because it's, it's a lot and you're, you need a break, right? Then maybe there's some burnout there. But that's not really the most common situation. Instead, what's happening is there are systems, workplaces, organizations, companies, sectors of the government um, that are enforcing policies and distributing funds or lack thereof that are determining now where our parameters are. And, you know, companies love to talk about how they don't have infinite resources and how they have to make cuts here and cuts here and cuts here. But then who does that fall onto? Us as human beings who, by the way, also don't have infinite resources, but yet we're, we're left with all of us on our lap. And when the consequence of the job is somebody's health is at stake, somebody's mental health is at stake, when you're dealing with, when you're a therapist facing a suicidal client or somebody who is in distress and in anger and doesn't know what to do with it and can't process it and can't process their moral injury in an effective way. And so they're going to go use substances or hurt somebody or do something that's going to perpetuate their own pain. You're the, you're the mental health professional in that situation trying to help. But if every step you take to try to help that person is you hitting a wall because the system has limited your resources and has made you prioritize other things... Now, not only is that person going to suffer, that client going to suffer from the moral injury and the consequences of that, but so are you as the practitioner who has likely taken on that role in order to be of good, in order to help and support, but you can't. So your values are now being ignored for the sake of somebody else's bottom line, essentially. So like I said, there can be overlap in moral injury and guilt and shame and burnout and PTSD, but their distinctions are really important to make. Oftentimes there's a degree of survivalism that's being challenged when, when a moral code is violated. And again, that's to varying degrees. It could be killing somebody or witnessing the killing of somebody to consistently being unable to help somebody who is in crisis, right? So 
there is, in a sense, a therapist who's trying to help a client in crisis who's unable to help them effectively the way they really need to, is, in a sense, witnessing it's the inability to act in that situation that creates the moral injury for that person. Oppressive systems love to turn the finger back and point at you and blame you for your distress, making you feel crazy and gaslighted as though you're not strong enough to keep up or to succeed or to hold yourself accountable. I mean, when we look at the way people of color are treated in America, how from slavery through the more recent Jim Crow era up until now, with continued mass incarceration of and police violence against black people, or the way ICE is using violence to traumatize and harm immigrants, we systemically beat our people down, physically and emotionally. And then we say, well, why don't you do things legally? Why don't you get a job? Why don't you stop committing crimes? Why don't you stop hurting each other? Because you know, black on black crime is actually more prevalent. No, it's all a distraction. Blaming the victims for responding ineffectively to their abuse at the hands of the collective so we can keep abusing them and saying that they're failing. We do this in so many pockets. There's an identity crisis that can come from moral injury, not recognizing yourself anymore, not seeing the person you believe yourself to be in your actions. And yes, there's probably some degree of personal accountability in all things, but ignoring the impact or the stronghold of a given system on our decision-making is really dangerous. And unfortunately, it's become the norm in our culture. So for example, I have a friend who also works uh, for a social work nonprofit like I do, and her employers made this, um, these, these self-care trainings mandatory in order to prevent burnout. But when she told me about her day-to-day responsibilities and how the company had just downsized, which left her with a bigger caseload to manage, and she lost X, Y, and Z resources because they were doing budget cuts, that I started to get angry on her behalf. I thought instead of asking her to take additional time away from the office so that her work continues to pile up, nobody's going to do that work in her absence while she's off at this training, right? She's learning how to use self-care as a band-aid for the victim blaming that's happening. What her employers should actually be doing instead is creating a better work environment where she isn't having to constantly overwork herself and go against her value system by prioritizing paperwork by dealing with systemic red tape all the time, an overcrowded schedule, and having to deal with the the workplace drama that inevitably is going to arise under those stressful conditions between employees or coworkers, instead of prioritizing what she should be, which is the, the critical needs of her clients. No, instead they say, go take a burnout seminar and then come back to us and you'll be fine and then you'll be able to, you know, be productive and 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 deal with the massive amount of work that we're throwing at you. So I want you to think about this the next time somebody suggests to you that you're burned out, because it may be so, you may be burned out. Uh, But it also may be that the environment that you're in is more consistently challenging your values and your professional instincts and your abilities, and that it's painful to experience that. So, I mean, what's the big deal about working within your values, right? I mean, I can hear almost this narrative that says, well, you'll always have to step outside of your values. You can't do everything that you want all the time. Not everything is comfortable. And when you're an adult trying to make a living, you've got to deal with stuff. Get over it, right? But but when we talk about professional instincts, when we talk about like part of my training as a therapist, part of my value, part of what I bring to the table for my clients and my employers is my values, is my professional instincts. 
So if I can't act on those instincts because the organization itself refuses to provide the necessary resources for me to do that or prioritizes things that don't facilitate that, that take my energy and put it elsewhere, then every day I'm giving up little by little that my instincts, my trainings, my skills, my ability, the reason that I was brought in as a tool to help fix something, it's all useless. It's non-existent. The very reason that I took the job is obsolete. Here's a quote from that Dr. Z video that I was talking about before about moral injury and, and confusing moral injury for burnout. He says, quote, humans are moral, idealistic creatures that resonate love for other humans. And what happens when our moral ideals meet the real world, where we cannot give our patients the care we know we could give if we had the tools and resources and autonomy to do it? What happens when we're trained in our schooling to give the best possible care to patients, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of their race, regardless of their condition or their gender, but then we meet the real world where it's all about the insurance company's bottom line. It's all about the hospital system's revenue. It's all about throughput and RVUs. And then we meet an electronic health record, which is a glorified cash register with the little patient stuff tacked on. We stare at that instead of staring at the vulnerable person who's having the worst day of their lives and you can't be with them. How would that make anybody feel let alone some of the most resourceful, resilient, passionate human beings on the planet are healthcare professionals, end quote. And I'm sure like as I read that, I just picture my own experiences of being in a doctor's office where they're on the computer the whole time and they're not paying very much attention to me. And it's frustrating as the, the patient to be dealing with that. But if you're a doctor who cares about your patient and doesn't want to be dealing with all of that stuff, but every day, again, it's chronic, it's consistent. Right. It's either chronic and consistent or it's to an extreme degree. So that's where your healthcare professionals and your combat veterans can, can sort of lap or, or cross over. So a combat veteran is likely experiencing just a much more severe degree of these moral injury behaviors. But somebody who's working in the healthcare professional is experiencing it, experiencing it chronically and almost unconsciously because it's not extreme enough that it's sort of sitting right below the radar and you don't even realize the punches that you're taking every day. And in this video, Dr. Z also points out something about moral injury, which is interesting because this is another area where moral injury for healthcare professionals and veterans overlap. What brought us to the work in the first place? So the sacrifices that we offered up in order to be a part of something bigger than ourselves for mental health professionals, we give up prime time in our lives to dedicate to education and training and working, you know, three jobs to, you know, get the hours that we need, but also get the pay that we need because we're not getting paid very well um, during our training, if at all. We sacrifice financially in order to pursue work that is just not lucrative. Um, we put work before our families while we get our balance in these you know, very wobbly careers. And we do it because we believe in the greater good. We want to contribute to a larger picture, which is also a common reason that people will enlist in the military. Although you could argue that their sacrifices can be much larger. I think the important piece here is recognizing that moral injury, like almost every other human experience, does not exist in a bubble. There are systemic causes to moral injury. There are community causes to moral injury. There are survivalist causes to moral injury. Um, Nikita Valerio, she's a community organizer, a writer, and an academic based out of Canada. She educates people about community care. And she does a lot of work to focus our attention on this more feminine approach to growth, which is to say that nurturance and community and connection and compassion and sharing, those are the right steps toward overall healing. 
So community care is the idea that when things are going all right for you, you invite those in who are struggling, not build a wall or kick them out, but extend them support so that when things stop going so great for you, there's somebody there who can invite you in too. So we don't have to suffer our traumas individually where they can eat us alive, but rather share them where they can actually dissipate. This is an especially critical piece with our veterans, and I have a whole episode dedicated to that conversation coming up soon, but keep that in mind. So Nikita Valerio says, shouting self-care at people who actually need community care is how we fail people. Again, because by saying self-care, self-care, you're burning out, self-care, we're saying you've got the problem, so you go figure it out. But the truth is, is that it's the community that's aching at large. And your stress and your burnout, if it is that, or your trauma, it's not happening in a bubble. And and like I said before, employers love to talk about the limited resources of the company. We had to cut corners. We had to downsize. We had to lay people off. We had to cut programs to save budget expenses. But they don't seem to realize that we as employees also do not have unlimited resources. And yet the trickle down of work to compensate for that, it falls on whose lap? It falls on our lap. Self-care is not the remedy there. It's a community responsibility. I know for me, by the time I became a therapist, I had absolutely already shed any illusions that I could save the world. That was definitely something percolating on my mind when I was younger. Uh, But as I got to my late 20s and I had already had an accidental corporate career under my belt, I had learned through a series of trials and errors that saving the world was not something that I was going to be capable of. And also maybe not something I wanted to do because it's sort of an imposition on those who don't want to be saved. So instead, I chose to become a therapist because I just wanted to do a little bit of good. I wanted to add a little bit of good to the world. And I was, you know, always a very intuitive, confident listener and I had a curiosity about the human condition that I carried with me everywhere that I went. And I had some experiences in my mid-20s while I was in corporate America that made me realize that I needed to finally pursue this thing, that I needed to lean into therapy and who I knew that I am naturally and follow that as a career. And one of the things that brought me into that was I had met a a friend of a friend who was experiencing her first episode of undiagnosed, unknown bipolar disorder. And so she had gone through this experience where she was hospitalized and then she was seeing a psychiatrist and a therapist after her hospitalization. And she reached out to me because she wanted somebody to talk to that she felt safe talking to, which I thought was so strange because she had all of these medical or mental health professionals in her life that should have been that for her, but they clearly weren't. And so she had told me that when she had reported her hallucinations to her therapist, her therapist said, you know, that that's crazy. That's not real. You have to let that go. And I wasn't there. So I don't know for sure if that's what happened. But it made me so angry to hear that. Because even though I wasn't a therapist, I understood the spiritual and psychological importance of hallucinations. I understood that the content of hallucinations had to have some kind of meaning. And that it was merely literalizing metaphorical thoughts that created danger and the despair that can come from that. And I had this very, I guess, elitist outsider opinion that all therapists should be able to balance their clinical responsibilities and their human responsibilities, that diagnoses and their meanings are not separate, that crazy is just a word that doesn't actually mean anything that we just use to cut other people down. I had all of these really righteous opinions, and I'm not saying that I don't still have those, but as I pursued my own career in therapy, 
I was starting to really get those opinions of mine exacerbated through the training that I experienced, this idea that I could do good. I could add a little balance in a world where there are therapists who are calling their clients hallucinations crazy. But the reality of it, again, like Dr. Z says, is when your values then meet the real world, um, man, the jobs that I was getting, there was no space for any of that. You would think that I wasn't even working in the field of human empathy with some of the jobs that I was taking. And these are tough roles. There was low pay and the theoretical approaches were going against every therapeutic instinct in my body, but we had to handle a large amount of people in a fast turnaround. And so you just, you adapt, you adapt or you crumble in, in that sort of environment that you don't align with. And I worked in treatment programs where it felt like my main responsibility was to control people just to maintain some homeostasis. It was like individuality was irrelevant and conformity was the thing that we were pressuring these people to do. And that pain that they were experiencing, it wasn't something to embrace or find meaning in. It was just simply something to distract from, something to shut up so that you could be better, so that you could stop doing the behaviors that are getting you in trouble. And that's that's so wrong. I mean, there's, you know, when it comes to, when, when I speak about moral injury myself, in, in the field of, of therapy, where it gets really tricky is when you recognize how much power you have in a room where somebody's sitting across from you being vulnerable with you. You are entrusted with their emotions, their psyche, and to just need to operate in order to check off the boxes and meet the company's priorities instead of meeting the client's priorities it's so dangerous and it's so disgusting to be put in that situation as a mental health professional. And that's where moral injury stems from. And it wasn't long into my therapist journey that I started to understand why a therapist would ever call a client, a client crazy for believing their hallucinations, because there's so many pockets of systemic therapy that are built on that same foundation of trying to keep people in boxes. It's very empirical, evidence-based, solution-focused, trying to turn therapy, trying to turn the human condition into a mathematical equation that we can measure. The focus is on cheap recovery, fast turnaround, and, and, and putting the client back into a productive state of existence, right? Imminent relapse be damned, because that's what our society deems a valuable mark of progress, productivity. Forget about the pain and the anguish that it tramples over in the process. Just keep making things, contribute to society, contribute to the economy, and shut up about what feels broken in your heart. Don't talk about that. There's no space for that here. Just deal with it. Apply a skill and move on. Get over it. Get back to work. So I work with military veterans currently. And moral injury is starting, like I said before, it's starting to become a little bit more of the conversation, at least in a more casual way. And how PTSD tends to really overshadow moral injury. And it's not to say that there there's not a ton of trauma. But sometimes more painful than that is the weight of carrying around the difficult choices that these men have had to make. And I say men just because the facility that I work at is all men, but I don't mean to imply that all veterans are men. And a lot of the situations that they faced, they were forced to act out of line with who they were to the end of surviving or to the end of completing a mission. That was their job. And they're trained at being stuck in difficult problem-solving scenarios in which there actually are no good solutions. But just because they're trained to do it doesn't mean that there's no there's not a major consequence to the human soul in that experience. 
And to be in a situation where in order to survive it, you have to suspend your moral judgment and make a decision based on some other purpose, that adds up over time. That makes it hard to sleep at night. That's chronic guilt that ferments into shame. And then it can dismantle ego strength and a sense of self. And it goes back again to that identity crisis that we can have. And like I said before, I have an upcoming episode that's going to focus specifically on veterans and how we can apply the feminine and this idea of community care as civilians to helping our veterans when they come home. But when we talk about moral injury in more chronic capacities, more everyday, day-to-day healthcare professional, mental health professional uh, capacities, it reminds me of this fable of the boiling frog, that if you put a frog in a pot of tepid water, it's just going to chill out. It's going to have a nice warm bath, right? But then as you slowly increase the temperature of the water, the frog will slowly adapt its body temperature to the water to remain comfortable. And by the time the water starts boiling, now the frog knows that it's in danger, but it's exerted so much energy trying to adapt to the warmer water incrementally that it doesn't have the strength anymore to jump out of the pot. And so it boils alive. And I think, again, that chronic day-to-day unconscious challenge to an individual's moral philosophy, that's what's happening. We're constantly little bits here and there adapting to the stress and the ache and the confusion and the exhaustion that we feel every day. And we just slowly try to adapt because we've got to get through the day, but we've still got a job to do. And then we realize, oh my God, this place is on fire. And I'm exhausted right now because burnout is like, I've so surpassed burnout at this point that I don't know how to get out of this. I don't have the strength or the energy to get out of this. And it's interesting, like going back to the masculine feminine thing, which a reminder, not gender, yang and yin, right? Uh, When I think about what the veterans that I work with had to do to incur their moral injury, what I recognize is blatant masculine violence, the collaterals of war, right? But when I think about what I've had to do to incur my moral injury, I recognize blatant feminine violence, sneaky violations of the human psyche, and this truly antisocial potential of certain iterations of social work, the iterations that prioritize saving money over serving clients and all of the distractions that come with that. And it isn't the individual social workers, right? Those are the frogs because I've met some of the most open-hearted people while, you know, working in therapeutic and social work settings that are, that are underfunded. It's not to say every setting, right? It's the ones that are, are misprioritizing. But over time, even those, those, those most empathic people, they either need to learn how to close their hearts in order to survive the situation or they run away. They don't last. It's not them. It's the people in power determining the funding, the regulations, the, the people who are adding arbitrary timelines and pressure, the people who are micromanaging through all of this paperwork, the, the people that distract from the real reason that we show up every day. My goal as a therapist is to help meet people in their pain, validate them, make them feel less alone, educate them about their feelings, give them tools to manage them and empower them to find meaning in their pain so that it becomes something that's working for them rather than something working against them. But in my experience, working under the veil of the system, it makes me feel like a failure every day because 
the system is asking me to work more hours than there are in a day, to offer services that don't make any sense, to ignore what actually needs most of my attention, and to prioritize things that just help them as an institution rather than the people the institution is supposed to be serving. And the thing is, is that every time I have a day that feels unsuccessful, I just try to chalk it up and say, it was just a bad day. I'll work harder tomorrow to try to make up for it and make it better. And when I reach that goal, I feel like maybe I have finally figured something out. Maybe I have finally gotten to a place where this role in the system isn't so bad. And I am maybe, in fact, adding some good to it. And then no sooner I start to have faith, something goes wrong and puts me right back at that, at that place. So, and so it just makes me wonder while the system is essentially backing us into corners where we are having to make decisions that go against our values. And it's essentially destroying us, especially when they turn around and say, well, it's your fault because you didn't take a nap today. So go do some self-care and then come back and you'll be productive. So while that's beating us down, what's happening to the most vulnerable? Who has the energy left to step up and help them? And I believe that the first step that we can take toward redirecting this is to name moral injury what it is. I'm not burned out. I'm brokenhearted that I am tasked with an impossible mission and no resources to accomplish it. And I'm focusing more on myself and the, the healthcare professionals and less on the veterans that I'm speaking about because the next Feed the Feminine episode is going to be dedicated solely to our military veterans and how we can utilize the yin or the feminine to help them as a culture through that idea of community care to reintegrate back into civilian life with civilian support and what role we have in that and how we can help share their burden of trauma and moral injury as citizens of the country that they have worn the uniform of. So keep this in mind for the next episode, but also consider right now that it isn't just veterans and first responders who struggle with moral injury. And in a system that prioritizes masculine things only, like money and checked boxes, it's never going to succeed in helping its most vulnerable. It has to widen its scope to the feminine. It has to include nurturance and compassion and tenderness. So when your boss accuses you of burnout, but you can, in fact, identify a source of moral injury, don't take that blame. Don't take that responsibility that you're only stressed out because you didn't take enough bubble baths this week or something. I mean, self-care is important, but self-care should not be weaponized against us. It seems to me that if we were to apply self-care in these situations, it's more of a self-advocacy approach where we stop settling for these environments and we certainly stop allowing ourselves to internalize that blame for an inability to function in an environment that is unhealthy. And then, and then we can demand the community support that we, that we actually need. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't have all the answers. I don't know how that pans out. I don't know how many people can get on board with that approach, but it's one way to start having the conversation. And in that conversation is where we move closer to feeding the feminine. So thank you for joining me here on the Feed the Feminine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to explore more, you can subscribe for updates on upcoming episodes and you can head over to thehungryfeminine.com or you can join the mailing list to stay in the loop. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Hungry Feminine. And thank you for being here, for showing up. I'll see you next time.